0: A reporter recently asked me about what harm I may have caused as a pain management physician who prescribes opioids. As I reflected on my last 10 years in this field, my response was that the harms I may have caused were because I under-prescribed these drugs, not over-prescribed them.
1: As a medical student, the prism of pain helped me begin seeing patients as people, discerning their stories examining their bodies, understanding their lives, and more. In medical schools around the world, the first simulated patient students encounter to emulate the rituals and mannerisms of medicine is someone in pain. Yet chronic pain, particularly the kind not emanating from a broken bone or an inflamed appendix, seemed like a distant, hazy concept for me. That changed when one day while exercising, I heard a loud click in my back and the metal bar I was holding with 200 pounds of weights came crashing down on my chest, pinning me to the bench.
2: That was Antje Bereveld and Heather horayak reading from their separate first opinion essays on the conundrum of using opioids to treat people living with chronic pain. Anchia is the Medical Director of Pain Management Services at Newton-Wellesley Hospital and an Assistant Professor of Anesthesiology at Tufts. Heder is a physician with the Boston VA Healthcare System and Brigham and Women's Hospital and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor.
1: Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, CEO of STAT. Thanks for listening. Johnson & Johnson is known as a leader in medical devices, and that business has a new name to reflect its mission. I'm joined by Ashley McAvoy, Executive Vice President and Worldwide Chairman of Johnson & Johnson MedTech to learn more about the importance of this growing space.
2: Thank you, Angus. We've seen firsthand over the past two years that the world needs and expects more from medical intervention. MedTech is driving advances in areas like AI and data science to start to address these unmet needs and and start to improve outcomes and expand access, all while really innovating the patient experience. You know, J&J MedTech were poised to lead this transformation because we're all about being a patient-centered, growth-focused innovator. We look to apply our deep healthcare expertise, our pioneering spirit, and broad network of partners to advance medical technologies and solutions. And clearly, it's all about solving the biggest unmet needs in healthcare and the challenges that await us.
1: Thanks, Ashley. To learn more, visit www.jnjmedtech.com.
2: Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's great to talk with you both, Anja and Heather. You come at the topic of treating pain from different directions, so I'll be really interested to see where we end up with this conversation. I'd like to set the stage for the conversation about treating pain, which really shouldn't be a controversial topic, but is. Treating people who live with pain has been a real roller coaster for those people and their doctors. When I was writing a book on prostate diseases in the early 1990s, I remember reading a Newsweek interview with Dr. Charles Schuster, a former director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, blasting physicians for their timidity in treating pain. I'm quoting him here. The way we treat cancer pain borders on a national disgrace. Since then, various guidelines have helped nudge clinicians toward better pain management for people with cancer. Then came the Institute of Medicine's 2011 report, Relieving Pain in America, which seemed to really change things by urging doctors to better control their patients' pain. Then the opioid overdose crisis prompted the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to dial things back in 2016 with what became extremely controversial guidelines, which the CDC has tried to address with draft guidelines published just a couple months ago. Anjia, at what point in this roller coaster did you enter the field of pain management?
0: I started working in pain management in 2011, I think at the time where we were still riding this sort of challenge of how do, how do we treat pain? How do we make sure that, uh, that our patients don't suffer? And at the same time, what is the role of opioids? I think we started questioning that at that time. I, I was a medical student in San Francisco and the devastation from opioids was evident every day when I walked the streets on my way to, to work in my training. And so I think all of us knew that there's something about opioids that, that is dangerous. And at the same time, it really was part of kind of mainstream medicine. As we are a very opioid-centric or pill-centric culture in the United States, uh, prescribing a pill is much easier and cheaper then sending someone to physical therapy or to an acupuncturist. So I think we've been in this crisis for a very long time, and it's not really until the CDC started to bring light to the question of how are we managing pain with opioids that this became a regular conversation in healthcare.
2: And, Heather, where was the pain treatment pendulum when you were injured? So I got injured back when I
1: was in medical school in Pakistan. This was in 2007. And, you know, one of the fortunes of being a medical student is that you know, you're you you're, you're considered an insider uh, by many. Uh, and so I got a lot of attention from um, really everyone who was part of the medical system there. Uh, I had a surgeon who evaluated my scans and he thought he could operate on me, but actually advised me not to go ahead with it because he felt, he said, I quote, that a back once operated is never the same. And I still think that that was some of the best advice that I ever got. I had immense access to p- physical therapy uh the center the p- the people at the center were so kind to me they would let me in and off hours I didn't need an appointment I could you know I could work on my back and it took years to get me better but it did work but I also look back and think about the fact that h- how many patients have access to those types of resources I can tell you very few and then when I came to the United States I started my residency at uh here, right here in Boston in 2000 11. This was really also at the peak of the opioid prescription uh, in the United States. Uh, believe it or not, I had very little experience giving out opioids to my patients uh, during medical school. So I had to learn on the fly. And often it was my patients who would teach me about the half-life of the different op- opioids that they were using, how frequently they liked them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So even though I was initially embarrassed, I also, when I stepped back, I, it was uh, incredulous to me what was going on. At that point, and really, my entire residency was dominated by, uh, by, by opioids, just like I think today's residencies are dominated by COVID.
2: Well, that's an interesting perspective. You know, before we go any further, do we need to make a distinction here between acute and, tr- and chronic pain, like pain following surgery, or as you said earlier, appendicitis? I certainly do think.
1: I mean, so if you look at how we think about pain uh, clinically, it's broadly d- uh, divided into acute and chronic pain. Chronic pain has gone through. Uh, chronic pain is a is an umbrella uh, sort of term that can include a lot of conditions, but is mostly defined as pain that occurs on most days uh, between three and six months. And one of the things that I've uh, learned during the course of writing my book is that at least from a scientific perspective, this idea that, it, that chronic pain is essentially just acute pain prolonged is actually not very well supported. Uh, in fact, the the nature of chronic pain with regards to how, it impa- how uh, r- uh, neurologic research has shown, it, it occupies different parts of the brain. Many of the therapies that work very well for acute pain don't work as well for chronic pain either. So... I do think that that's one of the important distinctions that we need to make. Many of the therapies that work very, very well for uh, acute pain, opioids being a primary example, uh, are not as effective for chronic pain as well.
0: I think that's a great point. I'd, I'd like to add that what our goal is, is to prevent acute pain from turning into chronic pain. And so if we can do a better job of really honing in the therapies that are indicated for the type of pain that's happening. So is this pain because of inflammation, because of an injury or an an injured nerve in the spine? How can we quiet these receptors so that that... Pain perception does not persist in the brain beyond that. And that's treating acute pain is so important. Where I think we've run into problems is we've treated acute pain with medications like opioids, which work really well for acute pain, but we've kept them going for too long. And that's where we've run into problems as well. But if we can get a good handle on acute pain and find new ways of treating acute pain, then we will ultimately do a better job of managing chronic pain
2: then that's a huge search for pharmaceutical companies. I get pitches all the time for people who have discovered a new receptor or, you know, new this or new that. People are really on the hunt for non-addictive uh, truly non-addictive uh opioids.
0: Yeah, and yet managing pain is more than just a pill, right? And it's and and I think that Harder mentioned that in his article as well. Why is it that in certain countries, they prescribe so much less medication than we do here in the United States, whether it's an opioid or other pharmaceutical agents. So there is a role for pills, but managing pain is more than just a pill.
1: And I think one of the things that I, I worry that we will fall in again is having a very pure sort of, bio, sort of biological or sort of purely biological lens on pain. Because if you think about, well, what turns acute pain into chronic pain is not that straightforward. Some of the factors that turn acute pain into chronic pain have absolutely nothing to do with the initial injury that someone had. I mean, for example, like one of the biggest risk factors for people developing uh, uh, chronic pain is having uh, adverse childhood experiences, for example. Uh, so I think that, I I do I do think that that is really, as uh Antje has said that, that transition is really where we need to work on and focus on and make sure that we're both addressing people's acute pain and making sure that we are preventing that from turning into like this, uh, this, this chronic form, which is so much harder to treat, uh, but also having a broad view on what are the factors that might be leading to this. It might not just be the injury. It may be, it, it may be the research suggests that it's far more than just that.
2: Regardless of the origin of pain, does pain beget pain? Anjia, you kind of alluded to that, that maybe not that pain begets pain, but that it can have other physiological effects in the brain and the central nervous system.
0: Absolutely. And it's not even just the physiologic effects. It's also sort of the effects on our daily lives, our families, our ability to work, our self-esteem, our mental health, and it's its everywhere. I think one of the, the greatest confusions is around the people that feel dismissed, that they feel dismissed by their doctors, and they feel that someone's always telling me that pain is in my head. Well, it is in in your head. Uh, there is It is mediated by our central nervous system. And there is a lot about how we can modulate our pain experience or kind of bring that pain experience down with the way that we can kind of rewire our own brain. And I, I think that one of the the challenges is is that for a very long time we never taught people about what those tools are and how we can manage our pain with something outside of a medication, or where, where, what do we do about the risk factors for the patients that are at risk for developing chronic pain? How do we address some of those uh, modifiable factors? Because we can. But if we haven't teach- been teaching our medical students about it, or even medical students like Heider who never really understood how to dose opioids or how to do that, safely or what's appropriate then we can't expect the healthcare system to be able to 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 own own this this challenge that we're in you know we're 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 in the opioid crisis but we're also in a pain care crisis so we really need to focus on educating all involved on how we can find other ways to treat pain
2: well that's a great point i've heard that physicians in training nurses in training other healthcare professionals get about as much time learning about pain as they do about nutrition, which is like almost nothing. And and the the thing that I'll add there is that most of what I was
1: actually taught about pain was, in fact, a, a, a lie that was uh, manufactured in corporate headquarters not far from here. I mean, we were taught uh, based on very, very dodgy research that opioids are not addictive. That's not true. Uh, we were also taught that... Um, uh, that you know twice daily dosing of OxyContin is uh is is the most is the best way of treating people's chronic pain we know that that was not that is not true as well in fact much of the research suggests that OxyContin should never have been a q12 or sort of twice daily medication to begin with uh there are also many other myths that are have permeated our medical education system uh such as this idea of pseudo addiction which was again coined by someone who went on to become a Purdue pharma executive um, which, which again stated that the treatment for someone who is displaying potentially addictive behaviors to opioids was actually to give them more opioids. <laughs> and then seriously, so absolutely, and this has been cited hundreds of times in the medical literature. This was taught to me in you know the best medical schools in this country. Uh, and but there are also more insidious myths. I mean, one of the myths that is still pervasive and is in fact believed by by almost a third of medical students and residents is that. Black people have thicker skin than white people, which suggests that oh, that their their pain tolerance is higher, and that may be another reason why we see racial disparity in how pain is treated. So not only do uh, not only do we not get a lot of time spent uh, learning about uh, pain, but whatever time we actually did uh, did get was actually based on things that were never properly tested and were never vetted.
0: Fortunately, that's changing. Uh, in the Boston area and in Massachusetts, it took the opioid epidemic for the governor to actually step in and ask educators, how are we teaching about pain? How are we teaching about addiction? And so we've seen a transformation in how Massachusetts medical schools are teaching about pain. And that's only been for five years now. So we have decades and decades of physicians trained in the state of Massachusetts who never were taught about pain.
2: Anya, in your first opinion essay, you describe a patient of yours with chronic pain whose experience still troubles you. Can you describe that?
0: I think as a pain physician, we can't help everyone. And as physicians in general, we can't help everyone. And yet when you have a young man in front of you who sustains a, a sort of a really devastating crush injury, you want to do everything you can to make him feel better What I didn't share in that story, however, is that he had many risk factors for opioid misuse. He had a long history of mental illness, and he also had a history of substance use disorder. So it's not that easy. You can still prescribe opioids safely in someone who has a history of addiction or mental illness. However, there's so many other factors that need to be taken into account. And I think John, who I called John, really brought it forward to me that this is hard. Treating pain can be hard and there aren't always easy answers and there's no blood test or uh, or scan that can help me understand what he's going through. All I know is he was suffering and unfortunately he committed suicide.
2: Due to pain control or overwhelming pain or do you know?
0: I don't think we'll ever really know. I think that his his pain, his suffering, and his also mental suffering was so great. And I'm not sure that uh, a prescribing an opioid would have made a difference. I think what we do know now is that we overprescribed. and that, as I spoke about is that it's, it's now our fear of opioids that make us afraid of treating p- pain, acute pain or chronic pain. And I see that in my students, I see that in my primary care doctors. Again, everyone is just afraid of doing a ro- the wrong thing, afraid of causing an addiction. Some people are afraid of being prosecuted. But mainly that fear of opioids is what tell them that I don't, I, I just don't treat pain. That's irresponsible.
2: So Ancha, I know you've written about what are called legacy patients um, in the New England Journal of Medicine, if I'm not mistaken. Heather, you wrote about a, quote, legacy patient in your just published book on pain, The Song of Our Scars. Can you describe that story? Because pain is so subjective,
1: uh, I think, and and opioids are, are, you know, both dangerous and addictive medications, I think a lot of times physicians kind of use some of their amateur and at times uh, biased, um, uh, you know, biased views to sort of look for what they might consider drug-seeking behavior. Uh, but this patient did not exhibit any such behavior. This was a patient who uh, did not overwhelm the clinic with phone calls, wanting more pain medications. This was a patient who was not getting pain medication from multiple different sources. They had this relationship. My friend kept increasing his dose uh, to be able to manage his pain and uh, and help him uh, be functional. But when this patient moved to another area, uh, what happened was that the physicians there were quite alarmed at uh the very, very high doses of opioids that this patient was on, and essentially um did not prescribe him, did not feel comfortable prescribing those very, very high doses, and that this patient then uh eventually you started using heroin um and then died of an overdose. I I and, and really that's what's happening during the pandemic, is that we've seen that drug overdoses have skyrocketed during the pandemic. And a lot of it is because people's usual sources of care are gone. Not only are people not having the same type of access that they had to their pain management physicians, although that's starting to change, but many of the other services that can be so crucial for patients with, uh, with chronic pain, such as exercise, therapy, etc., are also first not very common to begin with, but, but then had an even greater shortage during the pandemic. And then the pandemic caused a lot of people to feel a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. That also doesn't help pain. Andrea, you? you've been seeing similar things.
0: I had a lot of patients, especially my patients from Maine, where there was legislation to limit the maximum dose that someone could be on. And that put some patients into a really difficult situation. So the state of Maine really misinterpreted the CDC guidelines to say that you absolutely can never be on a dose higher than, you know, this arbitrary dose that was that was mentioned. We need to do, of course, a better job now of understanding who are who are appropriate patients for opioids, and then look at our legacy patients and say, "Okay, well, sometimes it's just too high." And it can be done safely. There's so many so much science and research now on the fact that it needs to be a joint decision with the patient, unless, of course there's there's overt concern for an opioid use disorder or a misuse. And it needs to be done slowly, and it needs to be done with frequent monitoring so that patients, are also don't feel abandoned, but we cannot forget that there's really profound effects on the body and the mind from these potent drugs. And for some patients, the doses are crazy high. We don't prescribe doses like that anymore, but here we are and we need to care for them and we need to care for our patients and we need to find a way that we can get them into a better place and perhaps they'll actually feel better those opioid medications over time can also increase pain, as Heider had mentioned about the one patient and sometimes just don't work. Many reasons that we really need to kind of take care of the patients that are on chronic opioids now without trying to reinvent the wheel. But in a patient who's been on opioids for many years, even decades, is not the same as someone who's never taken them before.
2: So I, I just want to clarify, it's it's possible, not recommended, but possible for someone to be taking a high dose of opioids and be functioning quite well, you know, activities of daily living, going to work, interacting with people, and living a normal life, even though they're on high doses of opioids. I know it's not ideal, but it's possible, yes?
0: It depends on how we define high doses of opioids. I think what we used to think was high 10 years ago now is just
2: crazy, yeah.
0: <laughs> the sky's the limit. It's, cra- it's crazy. It's not okay. I think it's harmful. I think there is a role for opioids in managing chronic pain for some patients. However, it's sometimes these really wild doses that are just, it's just not, it's not good for the body and the brain. And we need to rethink that. It may actually be making things worse, pain worse, mood worse, all of our physiologic functions worse.
2: You know, it, it sounds like you and all other clinicians that treat pain are just walking a tightrope. How do you treat somebody's pain and without causing addiction? So how do you do that?
0: Well, first of all, you have a relationship with your patients. I think one of the hardest part with in primary care and treating patients with chronic pain is they say, well, it takes so much time, or I don't have the time to have these conversations. We just need to see our patients more frequently. Even if it's not a long visit, you can still have a really uh, great and fruitful relationship with someone in a a brief period. So having that, getting to know the patient, having that trust is really, I think, very important. And then understanding that there's more to pain than than just an opioid. So if someone is taking opioids, there's best practices that we all follow. Seeing our patients frequently, regular urine drug screens, really not as uh, being a a cop, but more to just make sure what we're prescribing is there and that there aren't any other substances that we need to be worried about. And then we really also want to uh, make sure that the patients understand the risks and the side effects and that other safety measures are in place, including things like Narcan, Naloxone. Uh, If someone were to get into their medications, that the medications are stored safely. And so we can do a lot of things to help keep someone safe. And yet it's hard to take opioids too, it's a shackle. You have to refill your prescriptions every few weeks, you have to make sure that uh, you're in town, you're not on vacation, uh, that you're always checking in with your doctor. So it's not easy for patients either and many patients feel stigmatized. Opioids really oftentimes make them feel like they are questioned and that they're immediately assumed to have an addiction, which is often not the case. But there are many patients prescribed opioids for chronic pain that do have an underlying opioid use disorder that may not have been identified. And so all we can do is really uh, communicate with the patient and, and families and do best practices around screening, as is outlined by the CDC guidelines. I,
1: I think one thing that's obvious from uh, uh, from anyone who's listening to Anshio is that I think you have to root your the care for these patients in, in empathy and kindness. And sadly, that is not an experience of a lot of patients who have chronic pain. And I think, um, so So first of all, kudos to what you're doing for your patients. And I'm sure they're all lucky to have you. And the other thing is that having, I one of the things that I, believe in uh, and certainly that you know if you look at the founder of uh, pain medicine John Bonica you know from the start his 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 vision was always interdisciplinary pain management which was that it that pain that pain there's no gonna be a there's never gonna be a silver bullet for pain so making sure that we provide patients all the options that are available not just Pills, not just procedures, but thinking about anything that will help a patient. And certainly there are many other non-pharmacologic, non-procedural interventions uh, that can help patients uh, with chronic pain a lot. And I think that's one of the real, that's one of the spaces where I think patients have very little access to. I mean, if you look at the United States, we just have, in this year, there's only 74 uh, accredited pain rehab facilities in the entire country. That's just too little for a condition that affects one in five Americans.
2: Anjia, you've described alternative avenues. Instead of starting with opioids, start with something else. What are those something else's?
0: No, absolutely. I think there's so much. (laughs) I think one of the hardest things is insurance companies say, well it's it's not based in evidence or uh, it's too expensive we don't want to pay for it, but they'll pay for thirty forty fifty thousand dollars of spine surgery, but they won't pay for nutrition, exercise acupuncture mind body classes all the things that we know are rooted in science however it's not a huge placebo controlled randomized trial. We've to remember that pain care is individualized what well, works for for you may not work for me. And so I need to also meet the patient where they are. If I could have unlimited access, insurance coverage, we'd (laughs) we'd be a happier society. (laughs) But however, I know that's that's naive. I do think that we are moving in a direction where we're recognizing that there are a lot of alternative treatments that that are not a pill. And that we need to advocate for insurance coverage. And if we can do a better job of educating our healthcare providers about what's out there and what can be helpful for our patients, then we need to, as a system own this problem? How can we convince insurers to to do this? How is it that the VA medical system does such a great job of this interdisciplinary care, and yet we can't emulate that in the rest of the United States? What about those that live in areas that are underserved, don't have physical therapists, acupuncturists, but if there was better insurance coverage, maybe they could, maybe there would be people that would be able to provide those services in underserved areas. And I, I, I think the hardest thing for me is to make a recommendation to someone and they tell me, I, I can't afford that, even if it costs them a dollar a day.
2: You know, you're echoing a first opinion submission that I, I just received today from uh, Shravani Durbakala and Joshua Sharfstein, both at Hopkins, Um They were, they're writing about the new CDC guidelines, the draft of which was published in February, that espouses a lot of the alternative therapies that you were talking about, but they call these a, quote, bridge to nowhere for many, maybe most Americans, because the so-called alternative options aren't, as you just said, covered by insurance Or they take time or transportation or childcare or access to centers providing this kind of care. You know, it's an interesting confluence of what you're saying and this commentary on the forthcoming guidelines.
1: I think we're at a critical uh, juncture where I think that we're so desperate. The overprescription of opioids has been such a sort of great, has led to such a great tragedy. But I also worry that uh, that this desperation should not lead us down the similar path again i mean one is such example is if you look at what's going on with ketamine therapy in this country where you have ketamine clinics that are open across the country where people are going in paying out of pocket often you know with with cash getting this treatment that really has no evidence for chronic pain So I completely agree that I think that we need to focus on the the strategies that are evidence-based that help patients with chronic pain and really advocate for increasing access to those like exercise, like therapy. If you're hypnotizable, I think hypnosis can be a pretty good adjunct for many, many patients as well, but also pushing for better science in this space as well because we've already are we're already uh paying the cost of, of, of you know jumping the gun of 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 maybe maybe doing things that made sense uh before we actually had the evidence to back that up
0: there's so many wonderful things that I'd like to do for my patients and I wish I could and I can't and I I think if there was uh I think it, it's on us as a system to own the opioid crisis and to recognize where we've made devastating mistakes and how can we support our patients? So again, we can move on beyond prescribing a medication, which is just easier to do, quicker to do, uh, and we don't have a lot of time. And yet, if we if we can take the time and if we can find ways to improve access to some of these really excellent evidence-based therapies and. Uh, and I, I can't even find a nutritionist. I, I I know the impact that diet has on on the body, and that we, we can actually take patients off of some heavy duty medications for things like rheumatoid arthritis and other things if we change their diets. But there's no there's you have to be able to pay for it yourself. And and so I, if we can really look at some of these smaller trials, and as Heider also said find ways to, to, to do the bigger trials so that the insurers pay attention. But there's ways that we can have downstream effects on saving the healthcare system money if we, if we put some more upfront in some of these preventative strategies for our patients. We can really do a lot for preventing the costly things like hospitalizations and surgeries. And, and what we really need
1: is a sense of urgency in this whole space. I think that, you know, if you look at the pandemic, if you look at the COVID-19 pandemic, I mean, think about the innovations that we've been able to not just develop, but also test in large, randomized trials. Chronic pain is a, is a problem that is, uh, that is of such huge magnitude. It's not going away anytime soon. And I, and I do hope that we're not uh, complacent. Uh, with this, with this issue, there, there's so many things that are vying for our attention at this time. But I do hope uh, that uh, the people like Anja and and this this podcast and listeners will take this uh, one message home: is that we can't sit around and wait because people are suffering. And right now, we're having very, very difficult conversations without oftentimes a lot of evidence guiding us or access or options to give to patients.
0: And yet, there is hope. There's hope. Yeah. I was kind of sorry, Pat. I was going to say there's hope. Hold on. <laughs> the hope is this. The hope is that uh, we we have the information. And I think uh, to go back to the CDC document, I think it does a, a pretty nice job of summarizing what the options are. So now who's going to listen? But we have the information. We're ready to go. And yet pain research has been severely underfunded historically. So so it's it's time to change. And I think we can uh ride what we've learned unfortunately from the opioid epidemic to sort of understand, okay, well, how can we repurpose some of the funding through some of the, the, the recent lawsuits to really improve access to the best care and the safest care and and make that available for as many people as we can because there's really a lot that we can do to treat pain and a lot that we can do to help people feel better outside of a medication.
2: Thank you both for your work on behalf of people with pain. This story is far from over, and it will be interesting to see where this roller coaster ends up down the tracks. It'll also be interesting, Anjia, as you said, who is listening. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having us.
2: Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, Please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.